Welcome to the Charleston Time Machine. I'm Nick Butler, historian at the Charleston County Public Library. Rope Makers Lane is a narrow alley in urban Charleston with a name that evokes images of an antique industry wrought by men twisting and spinning long fibers into useful objects. While that scenario is accurate, it represents just one facet of the long and colorful history of this quaint locale. To gain a fuller picture of the lane's development over the past two and a half centuries, let's reach back to the town's early days to meet the people who created the lane and crafted the ropes that inspired the present name. Rope Maker's Lane was not part of the original settlement of Charleston. The early plan for the town, created in the 1670s, included more than 300 numbered lots, mostly half an acre in size, and fewer than a dozen streets. In the early days of the town's development, a number of property owners opened private courts, alleys, and lanes by sacrificing a few feet of their land, usually in conjunction with their adjacent neighbors, to create passageways that made it easier to subdivide their half-acre lots. These private passageways, through common usage, eventually became public streets. Rope Maker's Lane is just one such example. It was created to divide lot number 53, located on the east side of Meeting Street, just about 100 feet north of Trad Street, into two equal halves. The lane, really more of a dead-end court, extends eastward from Meeting Street approximately 245 feet in length, and today it's approximately 10 feet wide. Although there are no surviving records that tell us precisely when Ropemaker's Lane was created, I've narrowed down the time frame of its birth to a period of about 10 years. I feel confident in stating that it was created sometime during the 1740s, and I'll tell you how I arrived at that conclusion. The boundaries of the several town lots on the east side of Meeting Street, between Trad and Broad Streets, were measured by a surveyor on the 8th day of March, 1735, and recorded in a manuscript notebook that now resides at the South Carolina Department of Archives and History in Columbia. According to that 1735 survey, lot number 53 had been divided into two equal parts, each measuring 50 feet along the east side of Meeting Street. Mr. John Milner owned the southern half of the lot, while the Witter family of James Island owned the northern half. The surveyor, who was very attentive to details and anomalies, made no mention of an alley or passageway between their respective half-lots. A few years later, in 1739, Bishop Roberts published a very detailed map of urban Charleston, which he called the Ichnography of Charlestown. A close look at the east side of Meeting Street on that map shows a dotted line in the approximate location of what is now Ropemaker's Lane, but this line probably represents a wooden fence. John Milner, the owner of the southern half of lot number 53, died in the autumn of 1749, and a small part of that property was sold in December of 1750. The text of that property conveyance mentions the presence of a small alleyway bounding to the north side of Mr. Milner's lot. In short, there was no alley there in 1739, but it was present by 1750. 
It must have been created sometime during the 1740s. Now that we have an approximate date for this historic passageway, what can we say about its purpose? It's now called Rope Maker's Lane, but that name was adopted in 1956. Prior to that time, from the 1780s to the 1950s, this narrow lane was called Rope Lane, and sometimes erroneously called Roper's Lane. Prior to the 1780s, however, I have not been able to find a name attached to it. In fact, we have very little documentary evidence of how the lane and the adjoining properties were being used around the middle of the 18th century when it was created. Personally, I suspect that it might have been called Milner's Lane, or Court, or Alley, because property owner John Milner was the person most likely to benefit from its creation. John Milner, who died in 1749, was part of a family that had been in Charleston since at least the 1690s. He was a gunsmith by trade and owned a narrow slice of property in urban Charleston that stretched from the west side of Church Street westward to the east side of Meeting Street. This property represented the southern half of town lot number 72, fronting approximately 50 feet on Church Street, and the southern half of lot number 53, fronting 50 feet on Meeting Street. To help orient you, I'll mention that the Milner family sold their part of lot number 72 to the Hayward family in 1768, and it's now known as the Hayward Washington House at what is now called number 87 Church Street. Beginning in March of 1735, until his death in 1749, John Milner had a contract with the provincial government of South Carolina to clean, maintain, and repair the public arms belonging to the colony. These arms included hundreds of muskets, pistols, cutlasses, bayonets, and cartridge boxes. Since we did not yet have an armory or arsenal in which to store these items, Milner received extra money from the government to store the public arms on his property. During the Great Fire that destroyed approximately one-third of urban Charleston in November of 1740, John Milner watched his own house fronting Church Street burn to the ground while he was busy moving the public arms to a more secure location. He rebuilt his house on Church Street in 1741, and by the beginning of 1742, Milner was once again storing hundreds of small arms on his property. Just over a year later, near the end of 1743, the government of South Carolina finally completed construction of a brick armory building on the west side of Meeting Street, just a bit south of Broad Street. And finally, Milner was able to remove the public arms from his site to the new storage facility. According to an inventory made around the time of that transfer, Milner had in his possession 860 muskets in good order with bayonets fixed, 408 guns in good order without bayonets, 81 clean guns out of repair, 15 guns not worth repairing, 152 cutlasses in good order with scabbards, 22 cutlasses wanting scabbards, 76 clean bayonets, 32 pistols out of repair, and 448 cartridge boxes. From that time until his death, John Milner continued to hold a contract for repairing the public arms and held the title of armorer for the province of South Carolina.
In conjunction with today's episode, I've created a graphic showing the location of John Milner's property, Rope Maker's Lane, and the new public armory that was completed in 1743. I've taken the Ichnography of Charleston, published by the Phoenix Fire Insurance Company of London in 1790, but based on a survey made in 1788, and added notations to help illustrate the point. John Milner had a gunsmithing workshop and forge on his property, nearly midway between Church and Meeting Street, and his residence faced Church Street. With the opening of the new armory on Meeting Street in 1743, he moved more than a thousand small arms to the new facility, and his duties as public armorer required him to make frequent trips between his workshop and the armory. The shortest route between those two points is of course, through lot number 53 to Meeting Street. Although I haven't found any documentation confirming this route, I feel confident that Milner's work would have been greatly simplified by the creation of this narrow passageway through his own property sometime between the opening of the armory in 1743 and his death in 1749. Between 1750 and the onset of the American Revolution in 1775, I have not found any evidence of how Milner's narrow passageway was being used, or any sort of name attached to it. That situation changed in the autumn of 1781, when a white man named Charles Snedder purchased a long-term lease on a small parcel of land located at the northeast end of the unnamed alley. Snedder, whose background is a mystery to me, leased a piece of ground measuring 46 feet wide, north to south, and 58 feet 9 inches deep, east to west, which was recessed nearly 200 feet east of Meeting Street. The contract identified Charles Snedder as, quote, rope maker of Charlestown, end quote, but I haven't been able to find any record of his presence here prior to the Revolution. He seems to have appeared during the British occupation of Charleston, and, as a loyalist, he may have come here from England or from another colony. By the 1790s, however, he was an established citizen of the town and a member of a local militia group called the Charleston Battalion of Artillery. Regardless of the details of his background, Charles Snedder constructed several wooden buildings on his small lot and established a rope-making business in the autumn of 1781. That fact marks the point at which this narrow passageway acquired an early version of its current moniker. The 1790 Ichnography of Charleston, which was based on a survey made in 1788, identifies the passageway leading to Snedder's shop as Rope Lane, which measured seven and a half feet wide. 18th century Charleston boasted the presence of several rope manufactories, as would be expected in any bustling seaport. According to numerous references to rope works, or rope walks, as they were known, in early Charleston newspapers and in land conveyances, the manufacture of rope generally took place outside the city limits. The creation of very long ropes and cables for the maritime business required a long, narrow piece of real estate on which one could twist and braid hemp fibers into threads, threads into ropes, and ropes into cables. Think of ships' rigging, anchor cables, and docking lines. 
To make these fiber ropes waterproof for marine use, they needed to be coated in tar, which had to be boiled on site. This was not an especially pleasant industry, so Charleston's marine ropeworks were always located beyond the residential areas, just north of Boundary Street, now Calhoun Street. Captain James Reed's long and narrow rope walk, for example, is now Reed Street. The rope manufactory established by Charles Snedder in 1781 was a different sort of business, however. In several of his newspaper advertisements in the 1790s, Snedder described himself as a white rope maker, and he wasn't talking about the color of his skin. In short, Snedder did not make long, black, tar-coated ropes suitable for marine use. He made a variety of narrow-gauge strings, twine, and ropes for domestic use, using threads of both cotton and silk. At his small rope walk near St. Michael's Church, he offered such things as halter and bridle ropes, curtain lines, packing twine, drum cords, sewing twine, shoemaker's thread, surgeon's toe, fishing lines, and lines with which to make casting nets and fishing seines. When Charles Snedder, rope and line maker, made his will in the spring of 1799, he had neither wife nor children. He owned a piece of property on Upper King Street, where he apparently resided, but he did not own the property on which he had built his business on Rope Lane. He bequeathed his two-story house and lot on King Street to the Charleston Orphan House for the support of unfortunate children. In setting out the future of his commercial estate, however, Snedder turned to the enslaved people who had helped him build the business. Quote, I give my Negro man Bristol his freedom and emancipate him forever from slavery and also give him all my tools for rope making and twine spinning, end quote. Turning next to a woman who may have been Bristol's wife, Charles Snedder added, quote, I emancipate my Negro woman slave named Sarah. Give her free also a legacy of 10 pounds out of my estate for her to begin the world with. Charles Snedder, the white, white rope maker, died in the spring of 1802, but his rope making business continued for nearly two decades longer under the management of Bristol Snedder, the enslaved man freed in the will of his former master. I haven't been able to find anything about the life of Bristol, whose name was occasionally spelled in the newspapers and city directories as Brister. Bristol and Sarah Snedder apparently lived on the site of their rope manufactory and raised a family there as well. Although we know nothing about his origin or age, Bristol died sometime in late 1820 or early January 1821, during a period in which there's a gap of several months in the surviving death records of the city of Charleston at CCPL. On the fifth day of February, 1821, an auctioneer presided over a sale of Bristol Snedder's workshop in Rope Alley and dismantled the 40-year-old business. On sale that day were sundry articles of household and kitchen furniture, as well as two wooden buildings that were to be removed within 10 days after the sale. Following Bristol's death and the sale of their rented home, the widow Sarah Snedder had to move elsewhere, but her exact movements are unknown. 
according to the city's weekly death ledgers. A 60-year-old free black woman named Sarah Snedder died at the city's poorhouse on April 17, 1823, and was buried at the city's colored burial ground. She had at least one child named Charles Snedder, who worked as a barber in urban Charleston. In the early 1830s, Charles Snedder became interested in the efforts of the American Colonization Society, founded in 1816 with a mission to assist Americans of African descent to emigrate to a new colony in Africa called Liberia. Snedder expressed a desire to move to Liberia and stated that he had an aunt in Savannah who was born in Africa and also desired to return to the land of her birth. Now, whether that woman in Savannah was the sister of Snedder's father, Bristol, or his mother, Sarah, is unknown. The city's death record for Sarah Snedder described her as a native of Charleston, but that information may have been erroneous. In the spring of 1832, the young barber Charles Snedder moved with his wife and children to Liberia, where he died in 1840. But the surname Snedder continued to exist among Charleston's African-American population well into the 20th century. And if you type the phrase Charles Snedder and Liberia into Google, you'll find a gentleman of that name who's a radio and music producer in present-day Liberia. Small world, eh? The rope-making enterprise launched by Charles Snedder in 1781 went out of business in 1821, but the name Rope Lane or Rope Alley continued in the Charleston lexicon for many more years. In some later 19th and early 20th century records, you'll find it erroneously spelled as Roper's Lane. To be sure, there were no members of the Roper family associated with this property. They were a bit farther north, briefly, on lot number 54. The small, subdivided lots on the north and south sides of Rope Lane were eventually consolidated into larger lots and covered with grander houses occupied by wealthier folks. In an effort to end the confusion over the passageway's nomenclature, the City Council of Charleston ratified an ordinance on August 21, 1956, that struck down the name Roper's Court and officially adopted the name Rope Makers Lane. That's Three words, Rope Makers Lane. Shortly after the official renaming of the lane in 1956, someone created a marble tablet with the engraved text Rope Makers Lane, two words, and placed it in a new brick column standing at the northwest end of the lane. Millions of tourists have walked past that sign in the past half century and peeked down the narrow passageway, hoping to catch an imaginary glimpse of life in early Charleston. The next time you're in the neighborhood, I encourage you to take a stroll back in time here. Imagine the gunsmith, John Milner, and his team of enslaved assistants toting muskets and cutlasses to and from the town's colonial armory. Think of the white rope maker, Charles Snedder, selling fishing lines and shrimp nets to members of our mosquito fleet. Consider, too, the life of Bristol and Sarah Snedder, who lived and worked in slavery and freedom at the northeast end of the alley during the early years of the 19th century, and raised a young boy named Charles Snedder, who fulfilled his dream of returning to Africa. 
Everywhere you look in Charleston, there's a deep story populated with characters I'd like to meet. They're all gone now, but at least I have this time machine. CCPL is your home for local history. If you'd like to learn more about our resources, discover upcoming programs, or just explore the Charleston Time Machine, check out the library's website at ccpl.org. Thanks for joining me aboard the Charleston Time Machine. This is Nick Butler, and I'll see you in the future.